1: Well, welcome back. As we uh, head into hour two, it is a light, it is a delight and a light to have Rabbi Pinchas Solution Studio with me. He is the head rabbi at Congregation Beth Tefilah, known as CBT on Shea Boulevard, where all are welcome, Orthodox, uh, observant or not, Jewish or not. And he is also the host of the Rabbi Elush podcast, heard on Apple Podcasts. He spells his last name A L L. O-U-C-H-E, and I have a lot of notes for you today, <laughs> Rabbi. I'm ready. We have the rabbi in to put us into a Sabbath-type frame of mind. We do it in our second hour this time of year just because of the setting of the sun. First and foremost, tell us about your son Yisrael, Mordechai Chaim.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much for always asking, Seth. I uh, much appreciate that. Um as they say, no news is good news. We haven't heard from him in about 10 days. He's still in on the battlefields of Gaza. We don't exactly know where, but uh, he's fighting the good fight. And uh, we hope and pray that God keeps him and all of these brave IDF soldiers safe and secure, and that he makes them victorious very, very soon.
1: Well, amen to that, and we will keep your son and your family as I'll claw Yisrael in our prayers. Uh, Rabbi, uh, it's uh, really the first day of Hanukkah. Uh, it started last night, and you've put out a lot of information. <laughs> it's a bit whelming. Not overwhelming, whelming. <laughs> okay, good. As yeah. long as it's not overwhelming. No, no, you can tell your congregation that. What you ask of them is not overwhelming. What God asks of them may be whelming, but not overwhelming. <laughs> we tend to stampede to the over.
2: That's right. Well said.
1: I'm not sure where to start, but I will with your weekly podcast. A lot of people are familiar with seeing uh, menorahs or candelabras for Hanukkah with eight, really nine candles, and perhaps that ninth candle is explained by a question you asked your children. You said in the podcast, what is their favorite night of Hanukkah? What is their favorite candle? You have about 25 children, so you yeah, probably got a lot a little of more. How, how many do you have? <laughs> no, 10 children. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> all right. Tell us the story of the right answer to that question. What's your favorite night? What's your favorite candle? Right, it's heartening. So
2: it was an interesting conversation I had with my children because, as many of you may know, the menorah, as you mentioned, has eight candles. They are all even, evenly uh, laid out. But there is one candle that stands taller than the rest, and that's usually referred to as the shamash candle because it's really not part of the count. It's the ninth candle that uh, but serves to light the others. So anyway, I was having this conversation with my kids, and I said to them, so which candle is your favorite? Is it the first one? Is it the fifth one? Is it?" Uh, so one of my children said it's the first one because it sets the tone for all the other candles. And, uh, you know, every child had a different opinion. But there was my five-year-old who's, who stunned me with her answer when she said that it's that ninth shamash candle that stands taller. And uh, I said to her, why? She says, well, because it's taller than the rest. And then she adds with that unique child wisdom, she adds her own reasoning. and She says, I know why it's taller, because it lights the other candles. And when you light other candles you become taller. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was so beautiful because it's so true about life. When we give and we help others, it elevates us. As they say, the giver receives much more than the receiver. There's something in illuminating the world that benefits us tremendously and makes us grow, makes us taller.
1: It is that taller shamash candle that is used to light the other candles. How do you translate shamash?
2: Uh, the shamash is literally translated as the helper.
1: I was thinking guard, perhaps. Is that a Shomer? Is that Shom- related?
2: Yeah, that would be Shomer. Different word. Right. Okay. Shamash comes from the word Le Shamesh, from the verb Le which means to help. To light or sun. Shamesh is sun. Is that related? Or am I re- making a reach no, here? No, you're right. You're right, because there is this very strong common denominator between sun and serving. Okay. The sun illuminates. The yeah. sun serves this world okay. by adding light to it. So, i throw a few more so, words at you, I'll so, get it right. At that, some so point. that's the ultimate helper. Okay. The ultimate helper also illuminates. And that's what a shamash really means serving by illuminating.
1: And you can give light. That's really the message here. You can give light and in doing so not deplete any of your own. You can give heat, warmth, fire, and not really deplete any of your own.
2: Yes, that's that's the ultimate message. That, that's right. You know, it's true with any spiritual gift, as opposed to physical gifts. If I have $10 and I give you $1, then I only have $9. But if I have a lot of wisdom and I give you some of it, it makes me wiser. Because in the process, I'm learning so much. Same with love. If I have a lot of love and I give you a little bit of it, it makes me be filled with much more love. It almost bolsters my, my heart. Now, same with light. The more I give... The more light I have, and uh, that is something that ought to inspire us to gi- to give and give and become indeed be- beacons of light to the world around us.
1: Yes, it does seem to me that the more of a of a, a protected, safe, healthy, happy community you will exist in is
2: to the extent that you help enrich it. Right. That's to right. To, to the extent you keep it warm. Absolutely. Not only that, though, on on an individual level, no. you know, I think the best medication out there. Uh, for depression, for I mean, I, I'm no clinical expert, and of course that you know you have all sorts from Xanax to to the rest. But I, I, I would dare people to try the ultimate medication, helping someone else, and that is helping someone totally else. Totally true. And the more you help, the more you are purpose oriented, the more you give, and the more you illuminate, the more light you will have in your own world. Mm-hmm. And with that light, those. You know, symptoms of depression might just melt away. Yeah, that is the principle at the base of so many uh, of so many healthy
1: organizations. I know in twelve step meetings, for example, that is the basis of that. That you are there to serve and help others. That is your principle and primary focus mm. to keep and maintain your own sense of sobriety or your own sobriety. <laughs> yes, is to is to help others. That is the purpose, <coughs> actually. Of I, you know, of any kind of loss or suffering that we have, is what can you do with it to help others and to teach them from it? Yeah.
2: Yes, yes, and and uh, I, I would add <coughs> one more thing regarding serving. But I think that you know, we're a combination of bodies and souls. Yeah. <coughs> bodies have to receive, but souls have to give. Mm-hmm. And if we don't give, then we're only functioning like bodies in this world. Mm-hmm. And we will feel compromised. We will feel as if we're walking only with half of ourselves. Empty vessels. Empty vessels. Yeah. But when we give, all of a sudden, our soul is so satisfied because it is doing that which it was sent here to do. Okay. Then we feel wholesome. Okay. Good, good. It's something about keeping
1: life and keeping moving forward, too, isn't it? Um, It's one of the lessons—in fact, I think it's one of your last lessons in one of your several lists you inundated me with this morning. (laughs) From the Talmud, the righteous in their death are called living. And what you add to that is because what we do today and tomorrow for our nation, one could say our community, will reverberate to infinity. And so the question becomes, will you and your light also— live forever. It's it's true in the sense for certain that... I had a caller the other day. Beautiful. One of the most beautiful things that ever happened to me in 19 years of doing this, Rabbi.
0: Mm. He
1: was a young gentleman, and he quoted back to me. It was a great call on a very important issue. And he quoted back to me something I had said on the radio that I was quoting a professor of mine from college grad school. Mm. And it's a quote I often have used. A few times a year I bring it up. And not only did he quote it back to me, um, he quoted it in the name of that professor. He said, as you often quote your professor who passed away in 2015, um, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I thought, you know, this professor has illuminated people he didn't even know were born. Mm. He's still teaching people that way. And, and and that's how we can reverberate. With enough light, it will go to infinity because no doubt this young man will probably pass that teaching on and on and on.
2: Right, and that's so beautiful. And as we've said on this show, I think multiple times now, that we only truly own what we give Right, because that stays with us forever. It stays in the people that we touched and in the hearts that we set ablaze. But if we are only... Self-oriented, we only receive nothing from us, we'll s- stay. You know, I'll add that in Hebrew, the word for Chaim is in the plural tense. Because true life means to give. Mm-hmm. And if I give, then I live too in the plural tense, through the people that I've touched.
1: Life is about giving. Rabbi Alush, I'll be right back, and he'll give you some more. Little Peter, Paul, and Mary. Okay, thank you, young David. Rabbi Pinchas Alush is my guest, A-L-L-O-U-C-H-E-P-I-N. C-H-A-S is how he spells his first name, Pinchas. Um, We spoke of your son earlier. We speak of him every week, particularly as we keep him in our thoughts and prayers right now. Maybe we can conjure him up and he'll give you a call. Nothing would delight us more because as you put on um, your social media page, was it I think Facebook, you spoke about how it is that you will hear from him sparingly. Mm -hmm. Um, because of his efforts in Gaza right now. But you put out a list of things you thought, and I'd like to go through them with you. May I? Absolutely. One, and I guess you thought about this list. If you want to talk about how you came up with it, you can. My sense of it was that you came up with this list as you thought about the lack of... Um, the the lack of uh, being in touch that you have with him right now. That's correct. One, the love between a parent and a child is second to none, and if unleashed, it can create unparalleled wonders. There might actually be an interesting parallel to that in the portion of the week with uh, Jacob
2: and Joseph, but anyway, go on. That's right. And um, I, I wrote what you just read because it um, struck me that sometimes we reserve that love. Yeah and we say to ourselves oh i'll keep it for another time and i don't know if that's so smart i think the more we show that love the more we unleash it the greater the bond and the more miracles happen between you and your child uh i would i would warmly recommend especially you know now that uh, as you mentioned my son is in gaza and i wish i could just do this but i would warmly recommend every parent to hug their child more as cliche as that may sound, to say I love you as much as they can and to mean it, not just to say it, but to mean it when they say it and to demonstrate actions of love as much as, as you can. I think that this is particularly true in our generation where our children can be so fragile because of the world they live in that they need your support and they need your love.
1: Yes. No one will ever say I loved my children too much, and no child will ever say my parent loved me too much.
2: Very well said.
1: You put you well. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm being trite, but uh, <laughs> two, and this is related: hug your children as much as you can. The, those hugs will carry you and your child during those challenging moments of life when you will yearn to hug each other and you won't be able to. For example, now to the degree that you hugged your son a great a great deal through throughout his presence, uh, physical presence either here or elsewhere, I'm sure you think back on those as I'm sure he thinks back on those during the period of your separation right now, how grateful you must be for all those memories of hugs.
2: That's right. And it's not just physical hugs. I uh, actually have a dear friend who was unfortunately injured, not in this war, but in, a previous, in the previous Gaza war in 2014. And he told me something that stayed with me. And that is that when he was bleeding, and he didn't know whether he was going to live or to die. He tried during those moments to uh, remember memories that would warm his heart so that at least he can uh, uh, transition to either uh, this level of consciousness or not in a smooth way, in a comforting way. And he started thinking about Shakespeare and didn't do it. He started thinking about school. and And then he started thinking about his parents and how he would walk to temple every single Saturday morning with his father. And his father would tell him stories or sing songs to him. And he said to me that out of all the memories I've had, this was the memory that really strengthened me during those moments. And that's that type of hug we have to give our children too, not just the physical hugs, but create memories for them that when you are no longer with them, It will bring them love and will bring them warmth and will bring them strength. It's interesting, too, the kinds of memories um, that uh,
1: exist between parents and children or grandparents and grandchildren. Uh, As you were telling that story, I was thinking about stories my dad told me about his dad. I knew him only briefly, Um, but... Those were the memories he had, and he transmitted. There's something about a memory over a religious moment or a religious ceremony that makes it all the more impactful. I should I, excuse me. I should say all the more memorable. Mm. There's something about that. Those 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 religious moments, walking to synagogue together, walking to church together, whatever it may be, there is something or celebrating a holiday or a religious moment together. Something about that burns a little brighter in the ca, in the, ca, in, the ca, in the caverns of our mind.
2: In many ways, yes. And uh, there might be many reasons. Yeah. But one of the reasons I can think of is because those memories are multidimensional. Uh-huh. They don't just oh, include this world. Going on. Yeah. They include that, what, that which is happening beyond this world. And that elevates us, that strengthens us to know that we are not limited by this world, that there's so much more outside of this world that really we can connect to even during our low moments, even when we feel limited by this world.
1: Uh, Thank you. Uh, Three, if God is our parent and we are his children, isn't it time for him already to show us his unrestrained love and redeem us? How much longer
2: can we suffer? It's an interesting thing for you to write. Yes, because, you know, I do have complaints for God. And in Judaism, we really believe that you can have complaints for God, even though we recognize that the finite beings that we are will never fully grasp the infinite being that God is. But we can say to God, look, if we are partners in bettering this world, then it's time for you also to better this world in the best of ways, not uh, allow evil to happen. And um, I say that also as a child towards his parent. I think our children, if they feel that love, if they feel free in that relationship, they might sometimes come to us and say, hey, father or mother, do your role too. I'm, I'm in this with you, but, but let's act together. That's the way I feel. God, October 7th happened. Uh, to me, I I I can't fathom why it would happen. And I'm asking you, do something to better this world now. We face darkness, bring the light. The more one reads about it, the
1: worse it is. And um, that dawned on me this morning in a piece in the Wall Street Journal, I was reading about it from uh, someone who until now has been fairly callous about it. A writer who has been fairly callous about it was detailing the scandal over the silence, over the the issue of the rapes, and uh, she unloaded today finally. And I, I was reading it and thinking that which we have known over the last couple months um, and that which we have seen stories of here and there, um, this person put a lot of it together and it, and it was just so much the worse reading it yet again it's hard to communicate this is a tough one rabbi it's hard to communicate how strongly this attack affected so many Jews no matter where they lived I got an email I'll let you respond on the other side of this break I got an email from an old colleague of mine in Washington DC an old producer of mine non-jewish man named Claude wonderful human being one of my Greatest colleagues from Washington D.C., and he texted, uh, emailed me yesterday. I want to wish you a happy Hanukkah, and I said, "Well, thank you." I think it's okay if I wish you one too. He said, "It is okay." I said, "How do you know?" He goes, "Because I plan to celebrate it this year." Mm-hmm. I just, I just that kind of thing. Hard to communicate what that means. I'll let you say something about that because it is okay. Though we don't missionize, though we don't evangelize, it is okay for non-Jews to do that sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, we'll talk about that when we come right back. Sure. Welcome back to the Snow. Seth Leapson Show. Rabbi Pinchas Alush is my slave. guest, host of the Rabbi Alush podcast, uh, head rabbi at Congregation Beth DeFila. I was just talking about uh, so much uh, of the love and support and uh, sympathy that has come to, for, to the Jewish community around the world and in America. Uh, from the non jewish community and how much it 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 it's ineffably important, unspeakably important um in a way that 's very difficult to communicate a couple examples of course young david here he went to your he went to your your synagogue one night to stand uh, with you all mm-hmm. uh I was telling you about my producer back in washington claude who 's celebrating hanukkah for the first time in his life he 's probably forty five years old um there's so much of this. In, in fact, this week, a listener uh, sent uh, – she listens to me and Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager had suggested that non-Jews go out and put mezuzot on their doors. Uh, these are the boxes of, of, of prayer on their on, on, on the entries to their doors that that would be a nice thing for non-Jews to do. They don't even have to put parchment in it. And uh, she, a listener of both Dennis's mine, sent us a picture of this non-Jewish listener. It, yeah. It's hard to speak to this. I don't know if you can.
2: It's hard to speak to this, you're right. Uh, Besides saying that first and foremost, we are deeply grateful for the friendship and the support. Um, I will say that if I had to analyze it, um, I think that it really reflects on those good friends that we have, how good they are. Because evil should disturb every good person in this world, just as darkness should disturb everyone that cherishes light just like death should shatter everyone that desires life and uh thank God now that we face this 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 terrible terrible atrocity we have all these friends that are coming out and are saying no we stand for goodness and therefore we are with you we love life and therefore we are with you we cherish light and therefore we are with you, and it's it's you know to say that it's heartwarming will not do justice to it. It's it's much more than that. Thank you for that. Um, I'm working with
1: a friend on on a project. I'll tell the audience and everyone more about it as soon as we have it completely wrapped up. We're pretty close. Where we're trying to get a series of very prominent uh, Jewish American uh, writers, spokesmen, thinkers, authors to do a a big thank you to the non-Jewish community. It has been our thesis, not only everything you just said, um, and you tell me if it's theologically okay to even say this, but it has been our thesis that uh, but for those righteous non-Jews, but for that Christian community, um, Israel would have a certainly very much harder time of existing, and certainly Jews in America may not be able to exist without them. I mean, the gratitude must not only run deep but wide. I don't say it must in description. I'm saying we have to show
2: this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and we have to remember that this is a war of good versus evil, and therefore every good-minded and good-hearted person out there is in this together with the Jews that are being now attacked simply because they are at the forefront of this war. People know, I mean, good-minded people know that uh, the Jews are just the first... uh, Enemy in their in evil's line, the the you know non-Jews whether America will come next or other countries will come next. That's clear in any good-minded people's uh, uh, eyes. You know they're they're also not concealing that secret. And the chants in the streets in Gaza uh, are chants that include phrases like you know death to Israel and death to America, or phrases like. Israel is the small Satan, and America is the big Satan. So I think that there is that aspect, too, that people are realizing that this is a war of good against evil. And therefore, if I stand for good, I have to stand now for Israel and for the Jewish people. must be shocking to see the most
1: enlightened people, theoretically most enlightened of people, not getting that. I'm
2: talking about elite college presidents. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the grilling of that uh, congresswoman, God bless her soul. She's Stefanik. Yeah. yeah. Of uh, the three presidents of leading IV universities who just couldn't get the answer right, which was shocking. To me, what is so shocking is that it seems that these universities have become so sophisticated that they have blurred the simple meaning of what good is and what evil is. We used to know what good is and what evil is. All of a sudden now, it's it's one big confused world in 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 some of those campuses in some of those minds, and it's um, it's just a travesty. Like Nietzsche, they've moved beyond good and
1: evil, not to our betterment. Mm. Rabbi Pinchas Alush, and I'll be right back. All right, thank you, Neil. Rabbi Pinchas Alush is our guest. Um, this is a fascinating point you raised in your list of issues uh, in your list of thoughts, uh, Rabbi Alush. Um the criticism of our youth must stop. Fascinating. Take as much time as you want on this. <laughs> I spend a lot of time on youth issues, so this really yes, yes. brought up a lot.
2: Look, we spend a lot of time, I mean, that's the way it seems at least, criticizing our youth. We call them now generation Z and how spoiled they are and how confused they are and how you know we we have all these all these uh criticism and, um, what I wrote is that, yes, this indeed might stop, because if we had to go to the root of all of their seeming issues and problems, I would say that the root is that they are not given any purpose for which to live, and therefore their lives are filled with all sorts of vanities. But if we were to give them a purpose that is greater than them for which to live, we would see those youth devote themselves with determination, with conviction, and with passion to those purposes, and we would see them truly achieve greatness. All those problems just point to a lack of purpose. Give the youth a a purpose, and you will see them thrive. I wholeheartedly believe in that. You know, years ago, there was a great book written by two brothers, the Harris brothers, called... um, I forgot the the main title, but the subtitle was Teenagers' Rebellion to Low Expectations. Work Hard, maybe, was the title of the book. But um, it was teenagers who wrote this book complaining that they are given low expectations, that they so wish that some adult could give them high expectations and big purposes so that they can fulfill the reason for which they were created. By the way, it's a book written by Christian Brothers, and it had a divine message to it too, um, and a religious message to it too. But I think that this this message is indeed so so powerful. There you go. Do hard things. Do hard things is the book, a teenage rebe- rebellion against low ex- expectations. I would recommend that book to everyone. But it it just makes this point that really our youth is thirsty for high expectations, and indeed for purposes that are greater than them. And if we can empower them with those, then all those problems will dissipate and they'll achieve true greatness. I,
1: yeah, I, I despair of, of uh, berating or critis- criticizing uh, youth collectively, whether it's uh, the millennials or, or Generation Z. Um, and when I do, I, I try to, I think I do, I, I at least I know I intend to, it, 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 I don't criticize the college students. I criticize the colleges. I criticize the faculty. I criticize the adults. Everywhere from Plato, well, to the Bible, is, a, is, is an instruction to adults to teach the children. Teach your children while, well, of course, biblical, uh, not just a popular song. Uh, Plato's entire book uh, on the Republic can, can, could, could probably be summarized as instructions to parents on how to raise, how to raise children. And it seems to me that the youth problems that we do have in this country, we wouldn't, let me put it this way. This is the thing I always say. We would not have youth problems in this country if we didn't have adult problems in this country.
2: Mm. Right. Very well said. And you're right. I mean, if there, if there are people to blame, it's the adults that are not doing their job teaching the children what right. they need to be taught. Right. And empowering the children with the purpose that they need to be empowered with. You're right. You know, the Talmud, it's it's fascinating because the Talmud compares educators or parents to gardeners. And just as a gardener has the duty a duty to water that tree, to make sure that it grows in the best of ways, because the tree cannot do that alone, so too an educator has that same duty to water and attend and nurture that child, because that child cannot do it alone. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly
1: right. And there's uh, one of the main issues, I mean there's several, but one of the main issues with adults is also confusing the purpose of childhood and the purpose of – I was talking about this with a guest yesterday. Um, it seems to me we are now in the functional operation of um, of an irony where we are, in the words of Neil Postman, Ripping, ripping children from their natural, innocent garden of Eden by imposing on them and exposing to to them way too many adult themes at at way too young of an age, an age inappropriate time, such that by the time they become adults, they suffer from arrested development, and what we have bred now are a
2: whole bunch of children in adult bodies. Mm. It's interesting. You're right. Millions and millions of them, I would say, of children in adult bodies. Yeah. You're right. I think that going back to the analogy of the gardener, you know, you cannot treat a seed of a tree the way you treat the trunk of a tree. Flood it. Yeah, that's correct. You have to be very, very, very delicate with it. And you have to remember that at that stage, the stage of the seed, that tree, that seed, that's not a tree yet, is so sensitive to everything. Yeah. So why aren't we treating our children in such a way too? I mean we expose them to everything and anything at such a young age. Of course it will overwhelm that seed yeah. Yeah. and maybe even kill it. You know, right. they say it's, it's like boiling a seed. If you boil right. a seed, you kill the seed. And here we have the potential maybe not of killing spiritually or emotionally the child but certainly damaging it. Yeah, warping. Yes. Warping. That's right.
1: There's a m- reminder in, in, in certain parts of Judaism with young boys to think of them up until age three
2: mm-hmm. as a young tree with the cutting of the hair, yes? That's right. Yeah, there's a great comparison. Uh, first, you know, it stems from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we are told, Ki ha-dam The man is like the tree of the field. Okay, And you're right, there is a Jewish custom that we only cut the hair of our 30-year-old boy, uh, of, of our boy at the age of three first haircut and, he gets is at haircut, age three. That's, yes, that's right. It. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 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 it's been a long week. <laughs> okay. And in many ways, yeah. in many ways, it's to remind us that a tree can only be cut at the age of three too. Right. right. Uh, before the age of three, no cutting yeah. can take place because the child is so sensitive. You can't use justice towards a child. You have to use love. Yeah. You can't use too much discipline towards a child. You have to use love. And you have to use also sensitivity because it's so delicate. And that's really what this custom reminds us of. And it's
1: along the lines of also reminding you that you are dealing with a young tree here, that you cannot treat the way you would treat the trunk of a tree, right? You cannot over – there we would use the word overwhelm. You cannot overwhelm the child with adult themes. You know (laughs) – We're running out of time. We have one more short segment, and we have everything to cover in it from (laughs) (laughs) Jacob and Joseph and his brothers and his coat and the dreams and the pit. Maybe we can do something of it uh, before we uh, say goodbye to you, if you'll stick around for just a few more moments. We'll, We'll do a compressed version of the Torah portion, the biblical portion that will be read in synagogues throughout the world tomorrow based on Genesis 37. It's called Vayeshev, which means settling.
2: And he settled. And he settled. That's right.
1: Rabbi Elush and I will be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Rabbi Pinchas Elush has been our guest, host of the Rabbi Elush podcast. Uh, Shortest segment of the hour, just about three minutes in it, Rabbi, and the portion that uh, will be uh, read and studied and discussed tomorrow, I assume you'll be giving a much longer sermon on it, has a lot in it, so I don't know if there's one particular thing you want to talk about. The notes I took, the thing I was seized on this morning was um, what it says in the Bible after uh, J- uh, Jacob gave Joseph his coat. His this is where we get the coat of many colors, and his brothers hated him so that they could speak not a friendly word to him. Friendly is the word in my English translation, but it's shalom. It's peaceful. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting – That's it's into, he has all these brothers. They couldn't, they couldn't sit around the Thanksgiving table and have just a normal discussion like so many families call me around Thanksgiving and say, what do I do? But really, that's an interesting thing. Could not have a friendly conversation with their own brother.
2: Right. Or like you said, a peaceful or peaceful, one. yeah. That's correct. And in many ways, that led to not just Joseph's demise yeah. but to, I would say, the exile of the Israelites because eventually everyone moved to Egypt to follow Joseph's way, Joseph who was in Egypt because of this story. Um, but let us also remember, and I think that's the juxtaposition I want to do here, that the exile of Joseph began because of a distance of heart. Yeah. But his redemption began because of closeness of heart. Yeah. How do I know that? If you fast forward in this week's portion, Joseph was sold as a slave to Egypt. And he ends up in prison because he's falsely accused of rape. And in prison, he sees two people whose faces are down. And he turns to them. And he says to them, why are you so sad today? Now, I've visited many prisoners. No one smiles in prison. What is Joseph thinking? They weren't at a bar mitzvah eating sushi. But still, he was on a mission to lift people's spirits. And he had this closeness of art. Eventually, that closeness of art is what led to Joseph's redemption because many years later, Pharaoh has a bad dream and one of those people who he lifted on that day was actually the minister of Pharaoh who went back to work for Pharaoh and when Pharaoh had a bad dream, he says, oh, I remember meeting someone in prison that helped me with my dream and uh, they took Pharaoh out, the interpreter of Pharaoh's dream and Pharaoh appointed him as a vice king and the rest is history as they say but that closeness of heart again is what led to Joseph's ultimate redemption. So we see here a clear juxtaposition, which, should rally, uh, we, we, which we should take to heart, that if we are emotionally distant with people, exile comes about. If we are emotionally close with people, we care truly about people, and we are obsessed with spreading light, which is also the message of Hanukkah, then we begin to plant seeds of redemption for ourselves and for our world. Rabbi Alush, thank you. I'm Seth Liebson.